Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 87. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we're back for another week and another Disney Plus roulette. And the fun of the Disney Plus roulette is that sometimes you get something you're familiar with. Sometimes you get something you've never seen before. And sometimes you get something that on face value is very scary. Which is kind of ironic because we got one of the last horror movies that Disney ever made for the (laughs) Disney Channel. 1999's Don't Look Under the Bed. One of our listeners, Ray, he had suggested uh, the numbers for us for the roulette. And for all of you out there, keep those numbers coming because it's more fun. I'd rather get the numbers from the listeners than just put them in a Google random number generator. I don't know, but then we can't place blame in some cases. Well, y- yes and no. Um, <laughs> I want to be able to thank the listeners when it's a when it's a good hit and and place blame when it's not. Well, are we placing blame this week? That is the big question. We'll get there in just a few minutes because first I want to lay out the plot for Don't Look Under the Bed. Yeah, because I feel like this is probably not a crazy popular one. I had never even heard of it before today. I'd heard of it. I'd never seen it. Um, I think I I knew of it really for its cult lore because up until last year, Disney did not make a horror movie for the Disney Channel because of this. I mean, for the most part. Apparently, this film was so scary that parents complained they eventually pulled it out of rotation on the Disney Channel and no longer made horror movies at Halloween for the Disney Channel. That's a shame. But it is, you know, just one of the added benefits of having something like Disney Plus because I can see where if you're a parent and you leave Disney Channel on all day long for your kids, whatever plays is what they're going to see. So it makes sense that they would put it on the streaming service because you have to elect to watch it. Right. You would assume that if a parent is flopping their kid down in front of the TV and putting the Disney Channel on, that they're really showing them something that's sort of safe. And there were some... They are trusting Disney to show something safe. And some thought that this movie, not so much. The movie takes place in Middleburg, in a middle-sized town in Middle America. One night, all of the clocks jump ahead, waking the citizens of the town, including uh, Frances McCausland, her parents and her brothers, Bert and Darwin. Other strange things, such as eggs going missing and gelatin going missing, begin to happen on a regular basis as well. Frances has skipped a grade and has been fast-tracked to high school while her best friend Joanne remains a year behind. Frances notices a boy, who we find out is named Larry Houdini, um, and uh, he's been following her around, although no one else can see him, evidently. Only Francis can. While in class, Francis's biology 
teacher has his car egged, which is a strange coincidence, seeing as I mentioned before, eggs had gone missing and eggs had gone missing from her house specifically. And uh, the same thing happens with the gelatin that had gone missing because all of a sudden now the pool at the school is filled with jello and a member of the swim team gets stuck in it. So people start believing that maybe she is behind all of these pranks. We also learn that Joanne uh, secretly has a crush on Bert, partly because Bert unselfishly donated bone marrow to save Darwin, who was battling leukemia. And Francis tells Joanne that she is not going to tell Bert about this secret crush. That night, the boogeyman rearranges some of the flowers in the front yard and it's left out to read Joe Hart's Bert, much to Joanne's dismay. Francis arrives at her locker in school that day to see that hers is the only one without a spray-painted B on the outside. The letter B has been spray-painted all over the town and all over the lockers, except for hers. Hers instead is spray-painted inside, leading to further speculation that she is the one behind all of the pranks going on in the town. In the cafeteria, Larry tells her that he isn't a real person. He's actually an imaginary friend, which Francis refuses to believe, just as she refuses to believe that this is the work of the boogeyman. School officials believe that Francis is behind the pranks, and she tries unsuccessfully to tell them about Larry. Of course, they don't believe her, so they call her mother to the school out of concern. Her mother believes that perhaps Frances isn't mature enough to be in high school on top of all of the other things that she has been facing in her life. Um, And she thinks things like mind control may be playing a factor into her behavior, whereas her father tends to be more realistic about things. Later on at the library, Larry and Frances find... Uh, Le Livre, uh, Le, I'm going to butcher this, Le Livre de Boogie, which translates to the boogie book. They check the book out and head home. They learn in the book that they can build a tetrafuse to defeat the boogeyman. Um, and we also learn that Larry was Darwin's imaginary friend whom Francis told Darwin to no longer believe in, which is why he now this being Larry, is slowly turning into a boogeyman himself because evidently when you stop believing in your imaginary friends too soon or too early, they turn into the boogeyman. As Larry slowly turns, he also acts mean-spirited, accusing Francis of being relieved that she was not a match for Darwin's bone marrow so as to not go through with the surgery which at first she denies, but later on she does admit. That night, the boogeyman arrives and covers the house in Christmas lights and turns the lights on on the house um, and causes a blackout everywhere else in the town. So now their home is the only house with electricity, and the family ends up on the front page of the newspaper, and they are then hounded by reporters looking for answers. 
the fam I can't believe I'm still going on about this, by the way. The family <laughs> leaves to get away from the mayhem, but Francis stays behind while Larry builds the Tetrafuse. That night, the family invites the school guidance counselor, Miss Riedel, over for dinner to discuss the situation with Francis. Larry, meanwhile, is in the kitchen preparing a foul container of boogie goo in order to lure the boogeyman towards the Tetrafuse. Now, the Tetrafuse, it, it looks like a proton pack. It's made out of a, um, out of a vacuum cleaner. Larry's going to wear it on his back, and it's plugged in with an extension cord. Um, but it's a very crude design. So while he's in the kitchen making all of this, he uses some of the appliances for the recipe, but forgets to clean out the blender, leading to Miss Riedel partially ingesting a piece of Bert's gym sock, because that was an ingredient that he needed for the boogie goo, much to the family's horror, and further concern about Francis's behavior, because who do they find in the kitchen? Not Larry. They find Francis, because remember, nobody but Francis can see Larry. So, meanwhile, Larry starts to eat the boogie goo, which is concerning to Francis, as he slowly becomes more and more a boogeyman in his own right. Darwin steps in some boogie goo and drops it, uh, or drags it up the stairs because it was dropped on the floor luring the boogeyman out, who takes Darwin to Boogie World. Larry and Francis set off into Boogie World after plugging the Tetrafuse into a wall using said extension cord that I mentioned before, and then they climb under the bed and in they go. They track Darwin and the boogeyman down, but the extension cord comes undone and Larry turns completely into a boogeyman. Facing, uh, facing certain doom, Francis tells Darwin that he needs to believe in Larry, which he does, and it eventually converts Larry back to normal, whatever normal is. Larry battles the boogeyman while Francis wires the Tetrafuse to a 9-volt battery, which gives it enough power to turn on, turning the boogeyman into an old hag. The old hag calls Francis Franny, which was the name given to her by her own imaginary friend, Zoe, who she up to this point has denied having the entire time. She tells Zoe that she's sorry and that she believes in her, so jo uh, Zoe changes back into her normal form and is no longer a boogie person, as she will let you know. They go back into the house out of the boogie world, and the parents explain uh, that a situation in Centerville is the same situation that they faced in Middleburg. And uh, they have all of these bizarre pranks and the bees and the power outages, etc. and so forth, leading them to believe that Frances is in fact innocent of all of these pranks and that she's not behind any of it. Larry and Zoe tell Francis that they're going to leave to help the kids in Centerville and that they won't see her again, and vice versa. Because as they explain, imaginary friends are really only there for little kids like Darwin when they need them. And as soon as they're grown up and they don't need them anymore, they go on and they find a new friend and a new child. Larry kisses Francis goodbye, turns on the Christmas lights, and Francis goes back to speaking to her little brother about the imaginary friend, Larry. So, 1999. Let's start there, actually. Yep. Because 
when we first landed on this, when we were, you know, mapping out the numbers and, and doing the roulette and figuring out what we were watching, I saw the, you know, the thumbnail for the movie and I thought it looked like a really cool, campy 80s movie. You would think. I was really excited to watch this. So, <laughs> yeah, because if you go, we're on TikTok, by the way. Uh, Monoreal Radio is the username. You can go find us over there. Uh, one of the couple of places that we posted the video of us actually pulling up the uh, the film selection. And you said, oh, this looks rad. It does. It did. It did. Um, for 1999, this movie is dated. And when I mean dated, I don't mean it's dated in 2020 at the time of this recording. I mean it's dated for 1999. Yeah, it definitely doesn't feel like late 90s. It doesn't even feel like early 90s at some points. Right. But here's the tell. Because towards the end of it, there's a scene in Francis's bedroom. And there is a copy of Teen People... And I had this one because Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, and I think Usher were on the cover. And it was like basically every like teen pop star that was on Total Request Live. And they had like a page on all of them. And it was a special edition that they put out. And I ate it up. I had the co I might still have a copy of it like lying around somewhere. But um, I spotted it in her room and I was like, oh, my God, it brought me right back. Yeah, I felt like. The home decor, the costumes, the only thing that didn't feel like late 80s to me was how they sort of dressed Larry. He kind of had those like Will Smith glasses on. A lot of baggy pants. Right. A lot of uh, like the uh, really bright colored open button up short sleeve shirts. Yeah. Under, you know, over like a white undershirt, like stuff that you used to see a lot in the 90s. Like, if Chris Jericho or Will Smith wore it, you <laughs> knew it came out of the 90s. Yeah, it wasn't like Boy Meets World with all the vests. Yeah. But it it was definitely... It, but that's it. It felt early 90s, not late on the cusp of 2000. Right. So, out of the gate, that stood out to me. But let's start talking about... Let's start talking about the story here. I'm amazed, by the way, that you had that long of a plot. I can't believe it. Out of it. this movie. Well, here's the thing with this movie. As you pointed out to me, and I'll let you have your critique of it, you felt like there wasn't... We, we sat down and said, oh, we can get this plot out in two or three minutes. Because as you said, there's not a lot happens that necessarily pushes the movie, which I agree with. But that's not to say that a lot doesn't happen. No, it's not to say that this movie is a snooze fest and that there's not a lot going on, but it is very repetitive throughout and it doesn't push the story forward. There are a lot of things that happen in this movie that just happen that don't necessarily. I mean, I left things out because they went nowhere. I mean, a lot like basically I told you everything that you needed to know. And even a lot of that, I probably could have trimmed to save a minute or two. But I left, so, to, to take a phrase, I left so much on the cutting room floor and perhaps they could have done the same. <laughs> because there's just a lot that happens in this film that leads basically to nothing. 
which is surprising because you do have a great setup. I think the setup is great. Yeah. yeah, I was I was pretty hooked in the beginning with the time jump where everybody, you know, woke up at four o'clock in the morning because the alarms were all set ahead. I thought that was really clever. And I was like, it, it's, you know, you can tell that the boogeyman is pulling some hijinks, but it's not scary yet and i thought that we were gonna kind of go down a slippery slope into it getting scary which never really happened this to me was not scary um but i started her parents reactions were not at all believable bing yes um ned ryerson ned the head (laughs) plays the father steven tobolowski is his name and I, because he was, he was another actor that was in a, like a lot of those 90 movies. Like he got not top billing, but he got like, and featuring at the beginning of the, or at the end of the opening credits. Like he was the star of the movie. Yeah. Like it was a big deal that they landed this guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, the parents reactions were kind of lackluster. That threw me in. I, I thought that was kind of a little 90s tropey with the clueless parents so I was like all right fine whatever um and then the next thing the boogeyman put the dogs up on the roof and I was like this is brilliant right and what I like about how they set that up and it's not until I saw the movie the second time around that I picked up on it Bert the brother says to her says to Francis I don't want to take the garbage out because they're up at four o'clock in the morning and they think it's 7 a.m. But the parents are trying to figure out why exactly it's so dark out. Is the storm coming or whatever? And he said, it's too, I'm too tired. I don't want to take the garbage out. We should just get a dog because the dog will eat the garbage. And Francis says, well, when advice, by the way. Yeah, bad advice. And um, Francis says, well, when you go to college, you can't take the dog with you. What are we going to do? Put the dog on the roof? So she says that the dogs end up on the roof. The eggs go missing in the house. The teacher's car gets egged. The gelatin goes missing because the father said I was going to make, as he put it, the wiggly fruit thing for dinner. And then you end up with the gelatin in the swimming pool. So a lot happened early on to really paint the picture that Francis was doing all of these things. See, this is where it starts to get a bit disjointed, though, because the boogeyman set all of the clocks ahead and he lured the dogs to the roof with treats. So he did all of that the night before. And then Francis kind of said that offhand. So nobody knew that those dogs were on the roof yet. And then likewise with the missing eggs and the missing jello, both parents realized that they were missing. And then the prank happened. It wasn't like Francis said it. And then the boogeyman is using her ideas to execute these things. What I couldn't figure out is why all of these dogs went up on the roof in the middle of the night and basically nobody realized their dogs were on the roof until, I don't know, 12 hours later. Because all of a sudden you see the entire neighborhood with their ladders getting their dogs out. Her teacher's dog, Nanook, jumped off the roof onto the onto the teacher after he got home from school. Nobody noticed all day that your pets were missing. I can't even imagine having a dog that quiet that doesn't let everyone know that it's up on the roof. Also concerning is that Middleburg or Middleburg Winchesterton Fieldville, yeah. whatever it is. I, I, I don't know that they should have pets if they didn't realize they disappeared for that long. Very true. And I couldn't, here's the other thing. When, when we get introduced to the biology teacher, 
he's parked his nice convertible in the front of the school and he gets out and he says hello to Francis. Creepily. Very creepily. Um, and some of the students talk about how creepy they think he is. But Joanne and uh, Francis are walking to school and they're walking by and he says hello to Francis and Joanne says, who's that? She goes, oh, that's my biology teacher. I think he likes me. He's really nice. That was basically the line, right? Well, creepy, but that's the line. But it's safe to assume that she is one of his better students Mm -hmm. because even when they're in the classroom and she sees Larry in the classroom and she's just conversing with the teacher in front of the rest of the kids, they seem like they have at least a good relationship, not like she's a troublemaker and... You know, she thinks she's so special because she skipped a grade and he's going to sleep with one eye open. They seem like they have a fairly good relationship. Sure. So when when they all step outside and they see that his car has been egged, he immediately turns at her, who supposedly he doesn't have a problem with, and says, do you know anything about this? Like, she was the one that was to blame. Yeah, I mean, I love the juxtaposition of this scene because as the boogeyman is egging the car, they're talking about the the egg embryos in yeah. biology yeah um so i thought that was pretty clever but as far as accusing francis she's only just starting to put the two and two together in her mind and she remembered that the eggs went missing but like at that point yeah some weird stuff is happening but that that's just a coincidence you know the other thing that they never pay off on in this movie and it happens right in the very beginning let's circle back around to when the family first wakes up they're talking about Bert as if Bert is a troublemaker because he says, why does everybody always accuse me? Why is it always me? It's never me. And you're always the first to point the finger at me. First off, he saved his little brother's life. So I would find it hard to believe that anybody is just assuming he's a bad kid. Right. But let's live in the world where he is. Wouldn't it have made more sense? Because if he's the one that everybody always points the finger at, why does everybody assume now that nothing against Darwin having gone through what he went through, but the star child skipped a grade, super smart, disciplined, mature. Why are they all just believing that she is the one that did all of this stuff when you have a kid who, in his own words, has been accused of everything all the time, even when he didn't do it? To me, the plot of the story makes more sense if the teacher asks accusingly, do you know who did this? The rest of the school, the teachers, the guidance counselor ask her, do you know who did this accusingly? Because they believe Bert is the one that's doing all of this. And not only does she have to save Darwin from the boogeyman, but she's also got to clear Bert's name. It makes no sense to me that they all just assume she's behind everything. That would have been a lot more effective because aside from Bert saving Darwin's life, he really has no role in this film. He hardly has any speaking lines and because they don't utilize him as the troublemaker, he serves no purpose in the rest of this movie. And when the bees start popping up spray painted all over the town, all over the lockers, here's <clears throat> here's the conclusion that they draw. These are the, the again, the principal, the teacher, and the guidance counselor. They say to Francis, because now they've called her into the front office, 
the conclusion they drew was, your middle name is Bacon. And she says, yes. And they go, Bacon, with a B. And there are spray-painted bees all over the building. If someone was spray-painting bees as, as a way of leaving their mark, and they were tying it around to their name, would you use your middle name, or would you use your first name? So if you're already going with B, which stands for Boogeyman, if you haven't figured that out yet, does it make more sense that it was Bacon or that it's Bert? Again, it's it's it is yeah. you, you have tailor made this to be put on her older brother. So now she's got to protect her little brother and clear her big brother. No, the the teachers and the principal are using like some home alone wet bandits mentality of yeah. like you want to get caught, you want to leave your calling card. Not the case here. But um to touch on what you said about Bert too. The other issue with this, it would have been so much more effective if he was the one who's doing all of these pranks and whatnot, because he can get away with murder. He's the hero who saved his brother's life. Right. So it would have been more effective with his relationship to his sister if he's getting away with all of it and, you know, she's getting mad because she's the one that's being accused. The The problem is that neither of those characters are fully freshed out and Francis included. And that's, that's one of my biggest gripes with this setup is because she, they go above and beyond to establish that she has skipped a grade and how smart she is. Yeah. And she always says to her parents, there's gotta be a logical explanation for this. She never goes to find it. Instead, she keeps running into the fire and, Whenever there's chaos, she's standing in the middle of it. If I'm being accused of doing these things, I want to get as far away from them as possible. Right, and because she's surrounded by, uh, I mean, later it's Zoe, but because she's constantly with Larry, who nobody can see, of course people believe it's going to be her. What drives me crazy throughout the entire film with her specifically and we'll flesh out the characters a little bit more in a few minutes once we kind of uh, get a little further into the plot here, or once we finish talking about the plot, I should say. Um, but I do want to mention this here because I think it it does it does serve to be used now when I break the plot down. What's infuriating about her? I think the one thing for me that's infuriating about her, above all else, is that she seesaws back and forth. Yeah. She believes Larry is invi- is invisible. She acknowledges that Larry is invisible. And then two minutes later will go, well, can't you see him? He's standing right here. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, that is character, but it affects the story so much. Um, and again, it becomes disjointed as a result. Like to me, if you're always looking for the logical explanation about something, she should have been in disbelief, I would say, through three quarters of the film. And then up until the point where Larry builds the temperfuge or whatever it is. And Tet- it's tetrafuge? Sure. 
Um, and it's not working. And she's like, oh, just do this, this and this because she's supposed to be the brainiac. She should have like fixed it. And then it's like, all right, you're on board. You're starting to believe. Right. I feel like that would have been so much not even a better arc. It would have been an arc period for her. And for all the things that they do wrong like that, they do a lot of things right. Like in the opening scene, um, they they establish that, as I pointed out, um, Bert is a kid that gets blamed for everything, leading you to believe that he is a troublemaker. And Francis is the kid that skipped the grade. She's very smart. And then they have the quick throwaway line. They don't waste a lot of time on useless dialogue, which a lot of movies suffer from. For example, oh, I beg to differ. They have you. a no. They have a quick throwaway line where Joanne and Francis are walking home from school, and it's at that moment that Francis realizes that Joe, as she calls her, Joe's got a Bert, uh, got a crush on Bert. And she's like, well, it's so nice how he, you know, he did this for your brother and he donated the bone marrow. And they're like, oh, yeah, we almost lost him. It was scary. Like, boom, in and out of it quick. So you go, okay, so this kid has some good to him. And they don't waste a lot of time. And they don't rehash it over and over again. They bring it up a few times, but only when it's necessary. They don't beat that storyline to death where it goes nowhere. Well... I'll give you that. They do a good job of sprinkling the breadcrumbs, but it does come up unnecessarily because the next time we hear about it, you do get more of the backstory because their mom takes a meeting with the guidance counselor. And somehow, and this is completely unrealistic, somehow the guidance counselor knows all about it, but she doesn't have all of the information. And she's like, well, maybe Francis is... uh, having trouble because the older sibling donated bone marrow to to Darwin and saved his life. And maybe this is all repercussions of it. And it takes the mom spelling out, well, there's two older siblings and it was not Francis who was the donor. Right. First of all, how does the guidance counselor even know this? Unless it like would, that wouldn't be in your school. File. That's what I'm saying. It's not in your record unless the kid was pulled out of school for for however long recovery was it seems like this happened a little while ago like before Bert and Francis were in high school right or if Francis had acted out in the past and they had it in a you know behavioral file which clearly would not have been the case and then she's I mean she basically sits there and tells the mother here's my theory and it's a, it's a fairly uh severe accusation and the mother goes, well, we have another another sibling. She goes, well, it was just my theory anyway. Yeah, the it's delivery like, is garbage. She's she's making it sound like one of these like true crime podcast obsessed people that's got it all figured out. Yeah, it's that's that's pretty. I mean, I think of all of the, I actually think the cast we will get to in a few minutes is very good. Um, but the guidance counselor, and again, while it seems like I'm jumping ahead, it bears saying now, because she's going to come up a few times as we discuss the plot, she's the worst actress in this movie. She's the worst actress, she's the worst character in this movie. And she delivers a lot of lines that way. And we'll get to some more of her in just a little bit here. Um, something that stood out to me, I mean, 
so much, I mean, this movie's entirely unrealistic, but the most unrealistic thing, I can see one kid getting a few dozen eggs and, and egging a teacher's car. Doesn't take a lot to do that. Obviously, one kid is not going to turn back every clock in town. They're not going to spray paint that many buildings in town, that many structures. But the one thing that is the most egregious to me in terms of being unrealistic is the gelatin in the swimming pool. Do you... I mean, this is like an Olympic-sized pool. Do how you much know how jello. much jello? Yeah. You're telling me the three packages Dad was going to use for dinner went missing. I don't think like a Costco case of Jello would cover that. You'd need a dump truck. So a couple of packages of Jello go missing from the cupboard, and you think somehow all of that Jello is going to solidify in that swimming pool. That is. Of all of the unrealistic things in this movie, that is the most far-fetched, and that is the worst. That is the worst thing you can go off of in terms of trying to plant a crime on somebody. No, and that's where there's a disconnect as well because the eggs went missing, and the teacher's car got egged. Okay, that could kind of be written off as a coincidence. The dogs on the roof—they obviously know Francis had nothing to do with that. Then she takes this meeting and immediately, no matter what it is, all fingers point to Francis. Like, okay, now the jello is missing. Maybe that's not so much of a coincidence. But the other thing is that when all of this is happening, Francis is there in the room with them. Right. That's what really bothers me is that they're finding all of these things out, but they she has an alibi for either when they happened, she was with her parents, or when everybody's finding out she's in the room. Right, like the Jello, she's sitting in the office talking to them. Oh, they just have a lot of flawed ideas, and they have flawed theories, up to and including pinning all of this on her, trying to uh, psychologically figure out why she's doing all of this without having any real facts. And it, I mean, how would they know that a couple of packages of Jello go missing from her father's cupboard? It like just so much of it makes no sense. And the mother, she's defending her daughter the whole time. And they are the ones that put the idea in her head. So she gets home and she tries to talk to Francis about it. And Francis says, no, this is crazy. I'm going upstairs. So, okay, you're going to go talk to your husband about it later on. Totally fine. This is your child. And the best theory that you can come up with is... If she's not acting out because of us putting her into high school too early and her brother dealing with leukemia, the next logical thing, of course, is that she's under mind control. The only 90s trope that this was missing was that she was on drugs. Right. Because that would have been, that's like the full house explanation, the, you know, pick a sitcom. Yep. That's what the troubled kid was doing. Yeah. Or at least what they were being accused of. But no, logic dictates in this film that she's being hypnotized. Let's rewind a little bit here. Um, I want to talk about how nobody can see Larry but her. I have to admit, in the beginning of the movie, because this movie does set up very well. 
And there's a lot to build off of here. I think in premise, this movie actually does work very well. I dig the fact that nobody can see him but her because it does put her in these scenarios that she can't talk her way out of. So it it kind of, it's suspenseful because you're wondering how is she going to get her way out of this. But the other thing that I like about it is I did not know whether or not I could believe Larry. Right, especially when his eyes start to flash and his nails starts to grow. There are moments where I was like, wait, was it him the whole time? Especially because what they've been doing is, and this is where I can see where it would be scary for a child, they're... They never show the boogeyman until about, I would say, halfway to three quarters of the way through the movie. Um, So they're creating that fear of the unknown. They're doing the Jaws thing, really. Yeah. Because you don't have to see him, but they're creating suspense by, you know, dropping all these breadcrumbs. Right. Um, So I can definitely see where that would, you know, uh, affect a kid. Um, But because they haven't shown his face either, it does make a strong case that Larry could be the boogeyman. Yeah, you really don't know. And then when you see him starting to turn, you wonder for certain, can he or can't he be trusted? And what I really like about what they did here when Larry starts to turn, because honestly, I don't think enough happens in the middle of the movie that requires us to break down the plot much more. I think we can kind of jump to where he's just starting to turn unless you had something oh no there is a scene i want to circle back to okay well i tell you what why don't we just circle back to it now we'll hold what i have to say about him turning yeah because then then he starts turning in the next scene the the disaster of a library scene the whole thing is just ridiculous and this is where it's like you know like i said francis just keeps running into the fire if you're being accused of this why do you keep going back to larry it's not like she just keeps finding herself in situations with him, she purposely seeks him out. In this case, yes. What I the disaster in this scene for me is the librarian stereotype. <sighs> with with the constant shush. I've never met a librarian that acted that way outside of like elementary school when they're trying to teach you. It is such a 90s trope. And it's like why the, there's kids watching Peter Pan so you're playing a movie you kind of get the impression it's like a weekend so maybe people aren't studying it's not as serious so it's like why are you I know and I know libraries have a whole bunch of programs but now is not really the time to quiet them when you're showing a movie honestly this whole scene reminds me do you remember on all that when they had the library scene yeah. and Lori Beth Denberg played the librarian. She's yeah. like, quiet, this is a library. That's how this scene plays. It's ridiculous. I don't know why, like, in the 90s we found that funny, but... It, it just happened over a and constant, over again. Yeah. There are things about the scene like that that are a total fail. And there are things about the scene that I actually do like, um, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, what don't I like? Obviously, the stereotype, what I didn't figure out, what I couldn't understand was it's a video screen of somebody reading Peter Pan to the children. 
Yes, I misspoke. I said they're watching Peter Pan, but you're right. It's it's, a it's video the whole if you believe in fairies, clap, clap your hands. hands. Scene. So yeah, you as a librarian know because it's not the first time you've read or seen this tape that kids are clap. the kids are going to clap. So you're yelling at them for participating in story time. Why they don't have an actual person sitting there reading to them, I don't understand. But I'm willing to overlook that. And I'll, uh, I find more problems with the fact that she's getting angry at the kids for doing what they are otherwise told to do. When they're also unsupervised. Correct. And they're little. They're five, six years old. Yeah, because she's at like a front desk. Normally when they have these programs, there's somebody watching the 10 kids so that they're not running amok. Even if it's a kid, a high school kid that's volunteering. What do I like about this scene? I like Larry's interaction with the kids because the yeah. kids can all see him. The kids can all see him. So you, you you see that he has other imaginary... Well, he, he has other kids. He is the imaginary friend for a lot of people. And he takes that responsib uh, responsibility very seriously. And I think that that actually serves as really good development for this character. Because up until this point in time, he's just very eccentric. And you don't know much about him other than he's an imaginary friend... You don't even really know. It's not until after this scene that you realize whose imaginary friend he actually is either. It's not until after this scene that they get home with the book, I believe, that they realize that he was Darwin's imaginary friend. So it does serve as properly fleshing out a character that has not yet really been fleshed out. And again, they do it sort of quickly. He does the, if if you see, whatever it is, if you see me and you know a clap your hands, whatever stupid song he sang with the kids. But it's quick interaction and they have a great rapport with him and it, it, it's in and out pretty quick. And I can appreciate, to me, that's where they successfully move the story forward because they could have dragged this scene out a lot further. The librarian could have chased them around the library. And you know, I was waiting for that to happen and that never came. Um, I definitely agree with you, and I think that's a credit to the actor Ty Hodges, who plays Larry Houdini. Yeah. Um, so engaging with the kids. And and that read beyond just the scene. I think, you know, I don't know if he improved a little bit or whatever, but you could tell, um, you know, he was definitely having fun with them. The kids were really entertained by it. I don't, I don't think that there was much acting involved. I think he was, you know, genuinely having fun. Um, I disagree, though, with moving the story forward because I feel like this is actually where the script really falls apart is all these kids can see him. So he is the imaginary friend to many, but then we're going to find out that he was Darwin's imaginary friend. And because Darwin stopped believing he's starting to transform into a boogeyman of his own. So it's like, if you have, for all intents and purposes, five kids that you're assigned to, if the second one of them stops believing, you're going to turn. So how can you have multiple kids? They, they go back and forth between these imaginary friends being like the tooth fairy who can visit all the kids and having a specific one assigned like a guardian angel. And they never really pick a side. And that makes the entire rest of the movie fall apart, in my opinion. Disagree, and I will explain to you why. And this, th there are times where a quick throwaway line is 
necessary and other times where maybe you need to flesh something out more than just once. It's not that a kid stops believing in the imaginary friend that turns them into a boogeyman. It's when they stop believing in them prematurely. And that's not to say that the kid just grew up and grew out of it. Because their purpose, as they lay out at the end of the film, is to be there for kids who are not ready to not have an imaginary friend. So it needs to be the kid that grows up on their own and matures on their own. In this case, Darwin was not ready to get rid of Larry. Right, cause, but he was dealing with some heavy stuff. He got It had nothing to do with the heavy stuff. It he got Francis. rid of Larry because of Francis. He turned his back on Larry because Francis told him to do so. So unless one of those kids has an older sibling or a parent or a teacher that tells them you are not to believe in this anymore, he's not going to turn every single time a child stops believing. It was also that she told him that the doctors are real and Larry is fake because she was trying to help him grow up in an extraordinary circumstance. So I I disagree. I'm, you're not totally wrong, but I think you're looking at it as a little too black and white. As I look at everything. Um, no, I'll, I'll give you that. In, in like a Mary Poppins sense, that totally works, is that Larry will move on when the kid no longer, no longer needs him. Okay, fine. And that, that is sort of what happens at the end of this movie. But in the context of the library scene where all of these kids can see him and he is Darwin. Well, I guess, I guess that is it, is that they're young enough to believe so they'll see any imaginary friend. Right. All right. Now, when he, All right. when he does start to turn, though, I think this is where the movie really takes off, because I love the I love the practical effects. I love the makeup in general. But I love how it starts with the eyes and it lingers. He keeps those contacts is clearly it's an actor wearing contacts, but he's got those yellow eyes and he keeps them in. That whole first night, they eventually go away the next day. Mm -hmm. But between holding on to the eyes, the fingernails, but more than anything, it's his mean-spiritedness. Because Larry goes from being funny and eccentric to being insufferable and annoying very quickly. And I think that's just how they wanted the character played. And... Upon first viewing, for the first half of the movie, let's say, it's a little off-putting when he goes to become, you know, when he's very childish. But when he starts to turn into a boogeyman slowly, and he calls Francis out on not donating the bone marrow, Whew. it's so harsh because it's so out of character. But it's not done because he's trying to be mean. It's not done because they're trying to send a message, although they do. They're doing it because he's turning into an evil boogeyman. No, I give you that 100%. That is where this movie was really starting to lose me, and I snapped too because I was like, whoa, this got real deep real fast. It was really, really well done. 
and even Francis's emotional response breaking down was really well done too. Oh yeah. Yeah, that was that was a really powerful scene. I mean, it's a really powerful accusation. I mean, that that cuts right to the core. Right, and it does, because while she denies it, she later admits that he was totally correct about that. No, and I'll give them credit, too, because for two teen actors, they carried a really heavy scene, and they they pulled it off really well. Did it really well. Really well. And then that night, the boogeyman comes, and he puts the... He puts the Christmas lights on the house and and he kills the power in the town. I mean, I know it's Middleburg in the middle of the country with a middle-sized town, but they must have nothing else going on. Why does the media care so much about this that not only are they on the front page of the newspaper, not only are there TV cameras everywhere, but then you hear a news copter over the house. Why do they care so much? That angry press mob is illegal. You cannot go up to somebody's home and keep banging on the door and hitting the doorbell and banging on the windows. You have to stay at the street. You can't do that. That's insane. I mean, I'll I'll overlook it for the purpose of creating tension here, but even... It's it's <laughs> it's really bad. Oh, God. It's so no- one of the more annoying scenes in this whole film. I do love how the father swats at them like flies, though, like the like the insects that they are. I just but again, that's that's where it falls apart, too, because they get all uptight and on Francis's case, thinking that she's being hypnotized. And yet the press is beating down their door and they're barely batting an eyelash. They're like, let's go for a family drive. Yeah, you're right. And the only thing that it does is. It serves as a means of getting the family out of the house so that Larry can build the tetrafuge um, with Francis. Could they have found another way to do that? Of course they could have. This was probably the dumbest way they could have done it, but it's what they did, so we got to just take it and live with it. I don't think it was that good. I think it was completely ridiculous, but it is what it is. We can't change it. No, and it's like, if I'm Francis, I would have gone on the drive with them so that they could see, you know, they could have eyes on her. Right. I like how Larry, though, and it gets fleshed out towards the end of the movie here, how he is taking the form of Darwin's toys. Yes. Francis says that, but then when you see the action figures on the shelves, more specifically... When you see Darwin, he grabs like a scuba Steve, damn you, that he's going to play with. And that's right after Larry is in the bathroom in the full scuba outfit after Francis has taken a shower once the family's gone. So I like that they buried that in there and that Larry is taking the influence from what is in Darwin's room because he's trying so hard to reconnect with Darwin. Yeah, that was a nice touch. I didn't catch it the first time we watched it, but on the second time, I was like, that's a really good plant. Very subtle. I also love when um, they make the boogie goo, and now Larry's really starting to turn because he's eaten some of the boogie goo. And oh, that scene is worse than the library. Oh, in the kitchen? I hate that whole thing. The whole dinner. The the teacher coming to the house to try and give her a colorful picture of their family environment, as she calls it, and try to smooth things over. And then again, 
the, it, it just falls apart. Francis has to be accused from the excused from the table. She goes into the kitchen. Not five minutes later, her mom is in there. And all of Larry's remnants of the boogie goo are still like cooking and smoldering and everything. How, when you just ate dinner with her, would she have had time to do all that? Right. Not to mention, they don't even address the fact that the dad goes to grab dessert. Wouldn't he have seen all of this? You would assume so, but apparently he didn't. Um, and his pudding that he, I, he, apparently he put it in the blender um, to make the pudding. In a dirty blender? A, how did he do it in a dirty blender? B, how did he do, how did he possibly manage to use the blender after Larry used it to put the sweat sock in? I kind of got the impression, either way, it, it just proves the disconnect. Because I kind of got the impression that Larry made his concoction and somehow got it into the pudding after right. the pudding was already done. But regardless, then that would mean when the dad went to get it, he should have seen everything. Yeah, this... Because you don't see Larry, but you see the mess that he made. This entire thing is a train wreck. So moving on from it to what but you it, were saying. But it does... I'm not going to say it gets redeemed, but this is where the movie seesaws back and forth between you pulling your hair out, but then you really enjoy and appreciate what they did here because... When Darwin steps in the boogie goo and they bring it upstairs, Larry now is really starting to take boogie form and he smells the boogie goo. And now he's got the teeth and he's got the eyes and he's got the nails and he starts licking the bottom of the shoe because he wants the boogie goo. And Francis says to him, are you telling me the boogeyman has Darwin? And he goes... He probably came for his soul, but he's talking about the soul of the shoe that had the boogie goo on it. I got such a good laugh out of that line when he said it because it's the way that the actor presents it as well. It's it's very, very funny. So there are parts that, like this. Again, it's a quick line. It's it's a throwaway. That humor is lost on a child because they're not going to understand what the soul of a shoe is. But I, I have a lot of fun with it. I appreciate it. No, that was clever. So then they go into, do you know how hard it has been for me to hold the whole, the whole time we've been talking about this movie to not call it Bogeyland from March of the Wooden Soldiers? Huh. Or Babes in Babes Toyland. Toyland Witch. By the way, why do you people keep listening to it? I have to ask <laughs> this question. <laughs> so... We we're able to we're able to to go in and look at our statistics when we put a new show up specifically. We'll look at the statistics. I don't want to make that sound like we are obsessed with our numbers. No, but we check because we're not. No, and you have the dashboard. Whenever you log in, whenever we do an upload, it gives you where where you're going with this. Your top ten downloaded episodes of the month. For some reason. Babes in Toyland, I mean, and listen, we appreciate the support, but Babes in Toyland has been in our top 10 of the month, every month since we have released the episode. Which was now four months ago. We did it around Christmas. It's now almost May. Just, if somebody could please let us know, monorealradio at gmail.com, monorealradio on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and now on TikTok, as it were. 
just, just please tell us what it is about that movie because we weren't very kind to it. Yeah, no, what it is about the movie and what it is about the episode that people keep returning to. <laughs> I don't know. Again, I'm not complaining about the support here, folks, but like, you know, we interviewed Randy Cartwright and, <laughs> and for some reason, you keep coming back to Babes in Toyland. I just, I, I've been, I wanted to throw that out. There. Uh, maybe there was some big news that week or something. I don't know. Episode number 13, we go to talk to Randy Cartwright. Maybe that's what you want to go listen to. And you can circle back around to Babes in Toyland once we get to Thanksgiving again and you're in Christmas mode. But I digress. <laughs> Off into Boogie World they go. You mean Tim Burton Land? No. Not Tim Burton Land. Well, okay. There's I will no, give you... There's th- no Twisted Trees. There's no Windmill, but it, it definitely... It has the house on the hill. It it pulls from Beetlejuice, if anything. Yes, there is the house on the... Or the floating... It's almost like a house on a Pandora island. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it really feels Beetlejuicy to me. It's... Kind of Beetlejuice meets Honey I Shrunk the Kids mm-hmm. because you're I'm you're under the impression that you're in you're in Boogie World, but you are under somebody's bed. So I, I'm down with that. I love this set build. I like this set build more than anything I've seen out of Burton recently because Burton doesn't actually build sets anymore. No, and it was clever. That's it's, the you difference. You know, the stuff that gets forgotten about under your bed. There's a moldy peanut butter sandwich under there. So it was, it was yeah, definitely clever. the toy clever. race car. Yeah. But I like how the set is designed in general. I love when they're on that little race car. And I just love all, like you said, the knickknacks that get forgotten about. So much about this set and this scene are really, really cool. I think the fact that at this point, Larry totally turns into a boogeyman he has completed his transition and the extension cord is unplugged from the wall and now it's on francis francis has to be the one to defeat it it can't just be larry because up to this point larry's the one that's going to defeat the boogeyman to save darwin and she's sort of just there for the ride i love how she now has to battle two of them and and she's not really going to have a ton of help because Larry really just serves as a distraction. But the twist of him becoming a boogeyman is added drama to this movie that even from the minute it happens to the minute that he finally turns. Not, and I'm talking about from the minute he slowly starts to turn until the minute he turns in totality. The payoff is great. I love that they put this twist in the movie. I mean... Does he ever really go full boogeyman, though? Because he's changing. I I think he peaks just before they go under the bed. Because then Darwin is in Boogie World. So he's starting to believe again. And I feel like that's what gives you a little bit of Larry back. Enough, at least, to get Francis to him. To Darwin, to save him. No, he, he definitely fully goes. He's got the quills in the face. His face is totally changed. He high fives the other boogeyman when they kidnap Darwin. Yeah. And they throw a well, net I guess over. That's it. He's Francis. teetering at this point because Darwin 
knows something is happening. He knows it's supernatural or whatever. So I guess that's where it pulls Larry back enough to help Francis. Um, I want to circle back to what you said before, though. I mean, this is her character arc. She should be the one to go after Darwin because she has admitted to the fact she was relieved that she wasn't his donor. So now she feels like she has to do something to save his life. Right. Here's what I don't like about what she does here. Obviously, she's been in denial that she had an invisible friend this entire movie when she knows that she actually had one. She has been called Franny a few times throughout the movie, but she has been called Franny a lot in this particular scene. Mm -hmm. And she has now seen that as long as you believe in your imaginary friend... You defeat the boogeyman because they will no longer be a boogeyman because you believe in them again. Right. Why doesn't she just call Zoe out from the minute she realizes nobody calls me uh, Franny other than Zoe? Because she would call her Franny and she'd go, Franny. She, I think she knew early on in this scene exactly who that was and i think they tried too hard to rely on the tetrafuse to defeat her if she would have she knew the whole time that she had an imaginary friend she denied it she knew the entire time only the imaginated uh, imaginary friend would call her franny she denied it and she also knew that according to larry when you stop believing they start to turn. Yep. So she should have pieced together, especially to, and this is a, a, you know, hat tip to the filmmakers, the wardrobe of the boogeyman does match up to, I guess Zoe is supposed to be her doll. Right. Because the way that Larry looks like Darwin's action figures, Francis had a doll, and that's what Zoe takes the form of. But the clothes are very similar. Yeah. It looks like almost like a colonial... It's Victorian. So originally, apparently, originally these boogeymen were supposed to be a lot scarier than they actually ended up on screen. Mm-hmm. Disney dialed back and they gave them a Victorian look. Like they were supposed to be covered with quills and have very dark, tattered clothing and look very menacing. They dialed it back to make it a little bit more eccentric and fun, which is why they're always talking in limericks as well. Okay. So, but it but it ties around though to the doll. So you're right; that makes a lot of sense. But why didn't she just call Zoe out the minute she realized it was her? It was like she kept trying to deny because she's always look, looking for the logical explanation. You're in Boogie World. You are under your bed in, in a far <laughs> off world, battling the Boogeyman. Yeah. Give At it up. what point does logic go out the window? Yeah. If she would have just called it out earlier, a lot of a lot of hassle would have been saved here. And that scene wouldn't have dragged on so painfully. Right. So um, they they get out of it and uh, the parents come back upstairs and they wonder what was all that racket, kids? You know, again, the 90s tropes. And she goes, oh, we were just vacuuming. And the father's vacuum is now destroyed because they used it as the tetrafuse. And he looks at it and he goes... You didn't change the bag first, did you? You give you, you you say that to a kid today, they don't have any idea what that means. Because vacuums haven't had bags in them. I think since before this movie came out. I know one that does. Yeah, well, that's another story for another day. 
that we don't we don't need to discuss that on the show. That's a private issue that we have with it's not our vacuum, not our vacuum. But I think by the time the late 90s rolled around, you were already bagless with the vacuums. So a kid now, forget it. They're not going to have any idea what that joke means because it's said comedically. That and I mean, th- that's such a, a cop out, too. Yeah, I mean, don't you think that, especially that dad, wouldn't he have been really upset <laughs> that the vacuum is destroyed and that his his initial reaction wouldn't be you didn't change the bag first? Exactly, because he's like Danny Tanner. He's like planning his meals out three days ahead of time. He's wearing his suspenders, his dress slacks, his shirt and tie with a feather duster in his pocket. Yeah, he's Danny Tanner. Yeah, you would think he'd be a lot more upset about a busted vacuum. How do you feel about the end of the movie when they eventually tell Zoe we're not you're not ever going to see us again? Uh, Several issues here. Um, Going back a little bit to saving Larry. Okay. Um, Darwin is still trapped in the in the sock. The boogeyman has Francis when, like you said, all she would have had to do was call out Zoe. so the way that they bring Larry back from his boogie state is the clap your hands. From Peter Pan. Right. That's exactly it. They ripped off Peter Pan well, in this movie. And not even not even like the animated film because they, they leave that out completely. Yeah, but why are you upset about that? Because they just watched the kids in story time watch a video where they had to clap in the library. Right. It's I the mean, the first thing she thought of. They planted it, but give me an original idea. She had to think on the fly before her brother was killed by the boogeyman. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about for the context of the film overall. Give me something different. You know, plant the seed early on, especially because Miss Logic should have been able to figure this out. Why Why resort to Peter Pan? It could have been anything else. Yeah, it, it could have been. I take less issue with that than you, but I understand your point here. Um... But yes, then as far as the ending, um, my bigger issue with it was that we addressed it before is that, you know, they they can move on after being assigned to their one kid. Um, I get that in the sense of Francis is pretty much done with her imaginary friend, but they leave it with Darwin saying, I'm happy I can believe it within you again. And now Larry's saying he's not going to be around for Darwin. Right. So that's kind of upsetting. And then... I don't know where Larry all of a sudden decides to be smooth and go up and kiss Francis. Like, it's completely unmotivated. There's no flirtation throughout the entire thing. And he just kind of, like... Pushes Zoe out of the way. (laughs) Yeah, and, like, does, like, a little grunt or whatever that has only ever worked for LL Cool J and plants one on her. I don't get it. Yeah, that was a little out of nowhere, um, but other than that, I don't hate how this scene ends because I think the the kid who plays Francis pulls it off really well. She's she definitely did a good job pulling the sad thing and, and emoting. And you saw it in the scene where she gets called out for the bone marrow. You see it again here where she's clearly heartbroken. And you've only seen Zoe for a few minutes, and now you've really grown to like Larry. So the fact that they're never going to see them again, yeah, it's it hurts you as the viewer, I think. 
Yeah, no, and I imagine for kids that's kind of an even worse blow. Let's talk about uh, some of the characters here for a minute. Starting with Francis Bacon McCoslin, played by Erin Chambers. I think she certainly, she did nail uh, some of the emotions, for sure. The thing like is, sarcasm? I'm talking about, well, yeah, the sarcasm, but I, it, I don't want to say that she didn't do a good job here. I think she pulls off the lunatic very well. No, she she pulls that off. She pulls off the frustration of nobody believing her. She pulls off the really heavy emotional scene. Um, my issues with her aren't so much the acting. Yeah. It's the writing and the direction. It's the character more than anything else. Yeah, they, they kind of set her up for failure because... Like I said, she didn't draw a line in the sand of I'm not going along with any of this. She says she doesn't believe and then she goes right back to it. Right. Um, So that's bad writing. And worse for me is the direction because she delivers every line with an accusational, sarcastic tone that was so common in the 90s where everything has to be a quip and everything sounds so aggressive. Like, duh. Yeah. Like you said, I think that was a 90s trope. Uh, Ty Hodges as Larry Houdini. Um, I mentioned before that he goes from being funny eccentric to being really over the top and childish, but I don't think that was the actor. I think that was the director. So I guess that's it. Like, I think we can both agree that for the most part, we don't, t- other than the guidance counselor, we don't take issue so much with the actors and actresses it's so much more the creative with, with the creative with the director right um but I, do, I like him in this role yeah i mean at first i kind of felt like they couldn't get kel mitchell because he was working at nickelodeon at the time and right. they probably had a non-compete clause in his contract um and i i felt like this was tailor-made for him um but upon the second viewing uh I, I think Ty Hodges did a really good job with it. He made it his own as much as he could when, you know. I mean, this I, I said it to you after the first time we saw this. This entire movie feels like the longest episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark ever with bits of all that peppered into it. Robin Riker plays Karen uh, McCausland. That's Francis's mother. Her constant defending of Francis, even when the father wants to step in and say, no, it's time we get her real help, that became too much. The fact that she at first says, maybe we pushed her too far, maybe be this, maybe be that, or maybe it's mind control. I mentioned it before. Um, Other than the guidance counselor, I think the one character in this film specifically that I can do without the most is her mother. Yeah, the mother makes this film come off almost like the 90s trope of the family just moved to town and things are happening and the new kid is misunderstood. Right. Almost hocus pocusy in a sense. Yeah. Um, Stephen Valentine plays the boogeyman. And I I don't have much to say other than I liked him. I, I liked how he played it. I liked how eccentric he was. I liked how snarky he was. And... If you see what he, if you see uh, a headshot of his, he looks good in that makeup. Like they really, this is not meant to sound obnoxious. 
He's got good bone structure, so they didn't have to do much to give him the look. I mean, he's not he's not a hideous person by any stretch of the imagination. He's a nice-looking guy. But if you see what he really looks like and how they really did the makeup on him, it works so well. Yeah, like it just kind of accentuates his features. Yeah. It doesn't they don't do anything over the top. It doesn't it doesn't look like he's wearing a, a Halloween mask. Exactly. Um and I like that they address that too is that they kept saying boogie person at the end because I was kind of like, well, why would why would Zoe be the imaginary friend and then it turns into the boogie man? But the boogie man has always been the thing. Mm-hmm. But they do totally address the gender swap on that. Jake Saxon plays Darwin. And I really like him. He looks like a little Nick Zielinski. Yeah. And he kind of comes off like one a little bit. He's not as dweeby as, as as Nick is. But I like him in the film. I like the actor. He's a cute character. You feel bad for the kid. And he does a really good job. No, and for a movie where all of the kids that are named after public figures like Albert Einstein, Francis Bacon, and Darwin, obviously. Yeah. He's not as pretentious as you think he's going to come off. Yep. Um, the father, we mentioned him before. Bing! He's 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 comic he's the relief. 90s dad. He's the 90s dad. He's there for comic relief. The most useless character in this movie, though, is Bert. Played by Nathan Stevens. And it's not that Stevens plays him bad, but the character, other than, bo- other than donating the bone marrow, this character makes no sense. He's set up... He's set up like he's the one that's going to cause all the problems, yet he's never the one causing all the problems. He's the one that wants to be the most distant, yet he's the one that gets in the car and leaves with the family, and Francis, the only one left behind in the house. He's, this is a useless character in this movie. No, because he's not even in any of the school scenes. No. You would think that because Francis skipped a grade, they would have some kind of ac- interaction in high school, and they don't. You really could have cut him out and made Francis's issue be that she did donate the bone marrow, and she was bothered that she had to do it, and now she's redeeming herself. Right. Let's talk about um, the Dutch pra- angles. Yeah, let's talk. I was going to say, let's talk about I've some been production here. Sitting on this for a while. I can't hold it back anymore. Go. All right. We've mentioned this on the show before. Dutch angles don't work in any film, period. A Dutch angle, for those who don't know, is when the camera is on a slant. You know, you, you can basically see that the horizon line, instead of being at zero, is tilted up at like 45 degrees. They don't cut against anything, and you pretty much may as well be holding up a sign that says, hey, you're watching a movie, because it just takes you right out of it. They just don't work, and they need to go away. This film, somebody made a conscious choice to do about 90% of it in Dutch Angle. I counted within the first half hour, about 25 of them and then stopped because then you were averaging almost one a minute and I gave up on life at that point. Um, Stylistically, they were doing it so that you could tell the difference when Larry was around versus when he wasn't, although even for a child, that's an easy thing to distinguish. The cinematography was horrible. There, there is no way to justify this. It's terrible. It's a lot of Dutch. <laughs> it's a lot of Dutch. And I, 
I'm just going to let you have that because I can't say anything that you haven't already said. No, I mean, if, if you're prone to vertigo, don't watch this. It's going to make you sick. How do you feel about the practical effects? Because I think they're awesome. I love the doll heads that turn on the shelves. I love the smoke under the bed when the boogeyman comes out. They're really, really good. And even, you know, you were talking about it before when Larry subtly starts to turn. I like that they plant it very slowly. First, it's just the contacts and everything still looks normal. Then it's the one hand. And even some of the CGI for a decom yeah. was actually pretty well done because eventually they make his hand stretch. And I mean, it's it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it's really good. Yeah. For what it is, for, for what I imagine the budget to have been, it's solid. Right. And the makeup that's on Larry when he turns is as good as the makeup that's on Boogeyman proper the entire film. Yeah, really. Especially because when you think about it in the context of the Boogeyman is Zoe and what she looks like and how much of a full transformation it is, they did a lot to Larry where you can still obviously recognize that it's him, but they really did him up without completely losing the face. Final synopsis. I'll let you go first. Final synopsis. I will say after second viewing... I didn't tear into this film the way that I initially thought that I was going to. Um, I mean, for Dutch angles alone, that's what it deserves. But, you know, I pointed out my issues with the story and where it falls apart for me. You did have a lot of good counterpoints. So I feel like that does sort of balance it out because where there were issues, I mean, some of them are really egregious, like the rice pudding thing. And you can't overlook it. But otherwise, they do enough between the throwaway lines or things that they did plant to sort of balance out some of those issues. Some of them. Um, if this was like a full theatrical release, I would take a lot more issue with that. But for a decom, for what it was, um, you know, I think you can overlook a lot of that. I think the biggest disconnect for me, though, more than any of the story points was the title of the film as it applied to the story or didn't apply in mm. this case. Um, I mean, I can't judge whether or not this was too scary for a child. It certainly looks that way just based on the thumbnail, but there weren't a lot, like there were no jump scares. The boogeyman wasn't that menacing. He was more of a prankster. So... I'm kind of surprised to know that this was pulled from Disney Channel for being too scary. I mean, I can understand because of the makeup and practical effects where if a kid just stumbles across this as it was playing, you know, a parent might not want them to see some of those images. But as far as being scary, I feel like the title made it seem like it was going to be a lot more like... And Are You Afraid of the Dark? Or even a Goosebumps, which was a, you know, they played that after Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah. And there were Goosebumps and Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes that were way scarier than this. And that's kind of what I was hoping for. Um, and I, I feel like not just from, not just as far as being scary, but I feel like I wish that they had done more with the under the bed. Like, I wish that the, the boogeyman was maybe tormenting Francis in her sleep or something and in Freddy Krueger it a little bit yeah, exactly exactly um so for me does it hold up no 
absolutely not. Especially because, like we said, this, you know, and it starts off on that note. This was made in 1999 and it feels like an 80s movie. Yeah. I would go so far as to say that I liked this movie a lot more than you did. Um, I would agree. I hated it. The first view. The first time through, I I did not even want to watch it the second time. But I gave it the second watch, and then admittedly, I gave it a third. Because after the second watch, I liked it so much more that I thought to myself, is it just that you were able to anticipate everything so the bad stuff seemed less bad? Or are you just, are you having a better day? Was your coffee better? Why Did you have a better sandwich? What is it that made it that much better the second time? And I watched it the third time. And the third time, it got better than it did the second time. Is this movie dated? Absolutely. Does this movie have plot holes? Absolutely. Is this movie one 90s trope after another? Yes, absolutely. Is this movie better than Halloween Town? No, it's not. And I'll ask you, do you think this movie is better than Halloween Town? Oh, boy. Halloween Town came out in 96, I believe. Uh, they're pretty even keel for me. Okay. Halloween Town has the edge because there's no Dutch angles. Fair enough. Um, so with all of that being said, do I like this movie? I do. I like the setup. I like the framework. I like the actors. I like where they're going with it. It's There are plot holes and mistakes and issues with it that are not forgivable, and I don't forgive them. So I don't put this on the same level as Halloween Town in terms of Halloween-themed um, DCOMs. And I think because this movie was what led Disney to lo- no longer make uh, horror movies straight for the Disney Channel is probably why you started getting so many Halloween Town remakes after, or not remakes, but sequels after this movie came out because they had to fill the time slot because this was an October release. It was made for Halloween. Do I think this movie is too scary for a kid? Yeah, I actually think that it is. I think if you've got a six-year-old They're going to be scared out of their minds, and it's mostly because of the makeup. They're not going to see the humor in the limericks of of the Boogeyman. A six-year-old doesn't see the humor in the limericks of Leprechaun. They just see a scary face, and they get scared. So yeah, I believe that this movie probably is too scary for the Disney Channel. But I'm happy it's on Disney+. Plus. Is this something that's going to get thrown into my Halloween rotation every year? Probably not. Is it something that I will watch again? Yes, I will. So I like it more than you do. And maybe it's because I like it for its cheesiness and I like it for its nostalgia because I'm a sucker for the 90s movies. Um, And even the tropes after a while, as frustrating as they are, I find them endearing because I tend to like a lot of those movies more than stuff that's getting made today. Um, So, yeah, I I liked it more than you. And it gets better every time I watch it. So if you're going to sit and watch this movie and you've never seen it before, you, you, you're you probably going to hate it after the first viewing, but give it another try. Um, don't wait too long. Do it within a day or two. But give it another try and see if you like it more. And if you don't, 
then, you know, throw it in the garbage and never watch it again. I'll put it to you this way. I would have loved this as an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Would you have digged this as a 13-year-old when the movie came out? Um, I wish I had seen it as a kid because I think a lot of that is what's getting lost on me. If I had grown up on this, I think I would enjoy it a lot more. Sure. But we're interested to know in your opinion of the film. Ray, thank you again for the numbers. It was a fun monoreal radio roulette. Yeah, thanks, Ray. I mean it when I say it. Um, let us know if you've seen the movie, if you grew up with the movie, what your opinion is. Monoreal Radio on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and newly on TikTok, if you want to go ahead and let us know there. Hashtag things we never thought we'd say. That's right. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News this week for the Star Wars fans out there. May the 4th is coming up very soon, and we now know that we will have Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker, on Disney+. Plus. On May the 4th. I mean, coronavirus or not, quarantine or not, were you not going to release it on the 4th, really? They may have held off to try and get those DVD and Blu-ray sales a little bit higher, but it's so tailor-made to release it on May 4th. You have to. You have to do it. So that's coming out. If you haven't seen it yet, you will have your chance in just under a week here. Um, and they also announced that we are getting the Disney Family Sing-Along Volume 2 on ABC on Mother's Day. Yeah, Ryan Seacrest is hosting again, um, but they haven't announced any of the other performers. But I'm hoping they do like a big reunion, like the way that they got High School Musical back together. Well, all except for one with High School Musical. Um, yeah, Efron's in his bomb shelter somewhere. <laughs> with quote unquote bad Wi-Fi. Um, yeah, but I would love to see something like that come together. If you had to see one reunion come together on the sing-along show... Not Frozen. What do you want to see? That's a good question. Um, I can't pick Frozen, really. I'm I'm going to disqualify it <laughs> because I knew it's what you would pick. Uh, no, and it's easy to do because Josh Gad has been like Mister Internet this mm -hmm. entire time. He just did a Goonies reunion. Um. If I had to pick, um, I put you on the spot here. Yeah, you totally did. I want to pick like something retro and you know hard to find. I want like a beast. Like they just did Goofy movie because it was the twenty fifth anniversary of the film. Yeah. So like something like that would have been good. Um, I maybe although this isn't you know like an underground cult classic but i would love if they got the cast of toy story together to sing you've got a friend in me that'd be cool but i think um they did that already josh groban did it on the last thing yeah i wouldn't mind that i would like to see one of two things although it, you can't really do a full reunion per se but i would love to see tevin campbell with some backup singers do a power line tune do stand out um you mean eye to eye? Either of them. Either of them. Or eye to eye. I would really like to see Bette Midler and Billy Joel come together and do a song from Oliver and Company. Oh, my God. Wouldn't we all? That would be awesome. That's my pick. What's your pick out there? Facebook, 
Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, MySpace, whatever, whatever no, social not media. Not MySpace. Not not really. <laughs> Monoreal Radio is the username. You can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to check out Monoreal Radio on all the social. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice, and please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice or on our Facebook page. It would be greatly appreciated. Thank you guys again so much. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.